Today we have a very special interview for you all uh, from historian Richard White. And I thought we might lead off with a quote from his book, The Republic, for which it stands. By the 1880s, the Republican program produced a West that many found perplexing, as full of danger and disappointment as promise. Western development sometimes seemed more like a runaway train than an engine powering lasting growth. The Republicans had subsidized railroads the West did not need. These roads carried more wheat than the country wanted or export markets could absorb, more cattle than the country needed, and minerals that it often did not need at all. Instead of a pastoral paradise of small producers, the West became a region of bankrupt railroads, wasted capital, and angry workers and farmers. Since much of what the West produced in the 1800s could be produced elsewhere, overproduction and competition put intense pressure on the small farmers and the workers who were supposed to be the beneficiaries of Republican development. The federal government could push reform in the West more directly than elsewhere in the country because it had greater authority in the territories than in the states. It owned the public lands and could act with an impunity on Indian reservations that it could not employ elsewhere. It was no accident that some of the first bureaucracies took shape in the West, the National Forest Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and the U.S. Geological Service. Mythologized as the heartland of individualism, the West became the kindergarten of the modern American state. here today with Richard White, who is a historian of the American West. It has written many critically acclaimed histories, including It's Your Misfortune and None of My Own, A History of the American West, Railroaded, The Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America, and his most recent, The Republic for Which It Stands, The United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. And we've just learned he also uh, has co-authored a book of photography with a son called California Exposures that you guys should go check out. How are you doing, Dr. White? I'm doing good. How about you, Brian? Doing great. Doing great. And I'm here with Munya, of course. Hey, hello. <laughs> hello. And um, so, Dr. White, I think the first thing that we want to talk about, I mean, you, uh, your book, you know, It's Your Misfortune on My Own is considered one of the, like, critical books in this sort of new history of the American West and westward expansion. And... You know, when I was a kid, you know, an impressionable young lad in the 1990s, uh, I learned everything I needed to know about the West and westward expansion by watching Ron Howard's Far and Away on repeat for some reason, because I'm demented. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it sort of depicts the expansion of the West as just rugged individuals who are just tired of the political corruption of eastern cities making their way you know free of the government free of uh you know crime free of corruption right uh, making their way with gumption and moxie and just making lives for themselves right a place where an irish american of any type can really can really make something right <laughs> And uh, in your books, you present a slightly different picture of the American West and westward expansion. Uh, what does what this popular story of westward expansion defined by rugged individualism get wrong? Well, you know, my, my take on it started from the same place as yours did. I, I loved Westerns, but I was growing up well before you in the 1950s. <laughs> um, so so my, my vision of the West was formed by two different things. First, growing up in the West, I was growing up in Los Angeles, which no matter how mm -hmm. much people deny it, is, is the West and in some ways the center of the West. <laughs> and um, by watching, watching movies, and it was clearly a, a huge um, dissonance between the two. But it's only when I became a historian and began looking at these sources more critically that I began to question 
that sort of mythic version that I pretty much accepted before then because a lot of academics had it. It ended up being in the Turner thesis and other places. And, and what I found was it's never been rugged individualism. Even before the government, it, it was always kin-based. I mean, people went west with relatives. The sort of lone, isolate male just only exists during the gold rush and other places like that, and it's usually a disaster. The idea, the idea is to bring the West into the United States. It's, um, it's an imperial effort, and an imperial effort demands a state. And what the state does is provide all kinds of incentives for people to migrate West. That's what the Homestead Act is. It creates an infrastructure. That's what the transcontinental railroads were. It provides a necessary force. That's what the U.S. Army does against Indian peoples. All of these things are going to be things that are provided by the government. When you look around for what the, um, individuals do, is a lot of times what they do is ask the government to send stuff to help them. That's what's going on in the West. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, one of the big ones that's right there in the movies a lot of times that we don't even ever really think about, right, is uh, so like in Far and Away, I mean, the land is completely empty and they're just sort of walking onto it and throwing a flag down. <laughs> Or in the movies of your childhood, right? You know, um, there there's at least this depiction that uh, native populations are there, although they always seem to materialize out of thin air. You almost never see like the homes of them or anything like that. But it, it's interesting that right there in the movies, like Indian removal is, is is there almost front and center. But we don't think about that as government intervention for some reason. No, and, and you've, you've hit the key point. It's that white people have homes. Indians don't have homes. <laughs> Indians roll in Westerns and in most popular cultures to attack white homes. So, of course, whatever happens to them, they deserve it. They attacked us. So it's this utter reversal of actual history. Wait a minute. That's. This is their country. We're coming into it. We're killing them. But in a, in a Western, that's all turned out. We are, we are people establishing homes and Indians, for some reason, it's really hard to understand, um, come and attack us. And so, yeah, the, the home becomes a central metaphor in the Western and the way that Americans begin to understand what this process is. These were... These were Indian homelands and Indian peoples. And again, I use Indian peoples because I've worked with the tribes for years and Indians is what Indian peoples call themselves most often. Mm -hmm. and, and so what, what they're doing is this is a place they've been in contact with Europeans well before they meet Americans. There's a long history here, but the United States is something different. The United States is not interested in allies. It's not interested in getting them to help them against other imperial powers. You know, sometimes it is, but mostly what they're interested in doing is replacing them. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because when you talk about, you know, they're not interested in allies and things like that. I mean, early periods of Western expansion, right, prior to U.S., during the colonial period and the pre-antebellum period, right, that, uh, you know, the U.S. did try and, like, negotiate with tribes and things like that western expansion you know in your book you talk about how or in uh railroad and in uh the republic of Fort Sands, you talk about how western expansion moves very slowly in those periods but then all of a sudden post civil war it's this huge land grab right that happens yeah. over decades as opposed to a century yeah and there's i mean one of the things that happens that changes the whole balance of power in north america is up until about 1812, and even a little bit later, um, Native peoples could get European allies. The United States was one expansionist group of whites competing with others, and the Indians could play them off against each other. But post-Civil War, that's no longer possible. What you have is a major military and industrial power now coming against what are really fairly small um, tribal sovereignties. And it's, a, it's an utter mismatch. And the conquest will take place very, very quickly in terms of our expansion earlier. And, you know, it's, it's, these are nasty, violent little wars. And the idea that they've been romanticized into some sort of great adventure is one of the most astonishing things in American history. These, these are shameful. I just think that that is just like a really good point. And, you know, what really struck me in the Republic for Richard Stans when you really did talk about the home was just kind of that um, like intra um, anxiety um, that was felt over like white attitudes, right, about the dangers of blacks, Indians and Chinese that posed to like the white Protestant home. And you said that it uh, bubbled up over longstanding attitudes on like, you know, 
and racial attitudes, but they also reflected real deep anxiety about the home too. Can you kind of like expand more on just like the deep anxieties of the home and like how that actually manifested in like, I guess, Westward expansion and just like the intro dynamics there? Cause it was a really interesting and nuanced take. Well, you know, I, I appreciate you noticed that you've actually gave a very good summary. Of it, so I'm not sure what I'm going to fill in here. But uh, you notice more than a lot of academic readers have noticed about it. It was one of the major points of the book. And when I read the reviews of the book, very often people totally ignore that. But I, I will expand on it in my futile hope to get people to pay attention to it. Uh, All right, well, well, with that praise, I think we can just end, end the interview now. All right, right awesome. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> you know, I, th I think the critical thing to understand is Americans in the 19th century didn't understand the country as a collection of individuals. That's something that's read on it later. They understand the country as a collection of homes. And the country is undergoing great changes in the, in the wake of the Civil War. And one of the great fears is, is that the home is going to be collapsing. Part of it's about manhood. The idea is that American men are no longer going to be able to be independent producers who can support a family. They're becoming wage earners. Later on, it's going to be not only the, their wage earners, but they have to put their children and their wives have to go out to work to support them. So there's this idea that, that, that the home is deteriorating from within. On the other hand, what they have is, especially in an age of mass immigration, that immigrants don't have the kind of homes that Americans think they should have. That too many of them aren't Protestant. They're not Protestant homes. It's not going into the rural areas. They're going into urban areas. And so what you have a sense is that the home is deteriorating, not just because manhood is deteriorating. So manhood becomes a big deal in defense of the home. But that we're having a whole series of people coming in who are incapable of supporting homes. And people incapable of supporting homes run the gamut across the 19th century. Immigrants aren't very good at home. Tramps, which is vagrants, people, men who are out looking for work, can't support homes that are a threat to the home. The whole thing about um, lynching and Jim Crow is black men are a threat to the home. Chinese are a threat to the home. Native Americans are a threat to the home. Mormons are a threat to the home. And essentially, you want to know when you're on the wrong side of American politics in the 19th century if you're on the wrong side of the home. And it goes to this deep, deep anxiety that the whole basis of a republic is these independent homes which will produce Republican citizens and they're threatened from the outside and the inside. So the anxiety is incredibly deep. And it can be things that'll be work out well for people, much of the kind of reforms or attempts to support the home, but it can work out incredibly badly because it lines up enemies, particularly racial enemies of the home. Mm -hmm. Well, it was interesting because, you know, uh, Mooney and I were talking about this home metaphor. And of course, us being in Seattle, uh, it, it's just kind of funny because the fabled homeowner is apparently the reason why we can't have anything progressive in the city of Seattle. Yeah. As well, right? <laughs> you know? Very so, common theme on our podcast. too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's nice to know that some things don't change. Um, yeah, I mean, on this metaphor, I you know, I think this kind of gets at a, a second metaphor you, you make in Republic, which it stands, which I think is, is very good. And I kind of want to uh, find it real fast. And, and I, I just want to read this part from your book, just because I, I like it so much, but uh, you write in 1865, an older American nation died a casualty of the civil war, but Americans gave birth to a new nation, but it was not the one they imagined. Matthew Arnold's metaphor of gestation and birth in stanzas and the grand chartreuse imagined two discrete worlds, one quickening as the other died. But Americans had unknowingly conceived twins in 1865. The first twin embodied the world they anticipated emerging from the Civil War, and it died you know, before ever being born. The second unexpected twin lived forever haunting its sibling. And or forever haunted by its sibling, sorry. But uh the thing that's interesting about that is in the book, you sort of talk about there's this vision of America coming out of the Civil War that's based out of Lincoln's hometown, right? That we're somehow going to be this nation of just small business owners and homeowners, right? Spread across the world. Nobody too rich, nobody too poor. So we avoid this, you know, class conflict and somehow this is magically going to happen. But you sort of don't, this idea just dies in the process of the Civil War. 
and a new what comes out of the Wars is something very different right which i think lee bensel right calls the is sort of created by the yankee leviathan and things like that uh could you maybe expand on that a little yeah that, that's the great irony of the civil war is that the south clearly lost the civil war the southern version of society um a slave society a hierarchical society died but in a sense the north also lost the civil war because it was supposed to replace it was the world Lincoln talked about, this world in which, as you said, it's not going to be very rich. There's not going to be very poor. If you work for wages, it's only a stage in life. You're going to be independent. That your goal was never going to be to achieve great riches, but simply to be able to get enough money to support your family, set your children out in the world. And there's going to be a world in which democracy is going to be defined by Quality. But that world, if it ever existed, and in a lot of ways it never did, um, is dying as thoroughly as, as slavery is dying. And that becomes the irony of what happens after the Civil War. People are creating a world, but it's not the world they set out to create. Um, they're going to be su as surprised by what happens as anybody else in the world. That the ideal that they had of um, the United States, which is why they read it onto the Western myth, has become mythic. It has very little to do with the realities of a new industrial, multicultural, multi-ethnic, ethnic, multiracial society, which is going to exist in North America. Mm -hmm. well, and I think it's kind of interesting because I think most historians see uh this this period in the late 19th century as obviously a period of like great change as you know i mean i think it's du bois calls it like the second revolution going into reconstruction stuff that there is this break but i think what is sort of interesting is you you pose this idea that reconstruction and the gilded age actually are not uh necessarily 100 opposed to one another but have these links and that link being an increase in federal intervention, right? The idea that the federal government is now going to be a very important part of the American state going forward. Uh, and also uh, this idea of the federal government being used uh, in very conscious ways to sort of shape the society, although in very different ways between Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, right? Um, so maybe can you expand maybe a little bit on that, that sort of increased role of the federal government post-war? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that historians, particularly Western historians, have started to do over the last 10 or 15 years is think of Reconstruction as something that happens not just in the South. There's going to be a Western Reconstruction. And their goals are going to be the same, but they're going to work out very, very differently. In the South, the goals are ones which, in fact, you know, we still are nostalgic for with good reason. What we're going to do is dismantle the old Southern system. We're going to reconstruct the South. We're going to bring in black men, because women still don't have suffrage, black men with full citizenship rights. They're going to establish black homes, which are going to be pretty much the mirror of white homes. We're going to redistribute um, the means of production, because that time where they hoped for, because Thaddeus Stevens wants them, by means of production, all I mean is land, into small holdings. And the South will become a replica of Springfield. And this becomes something which is going to fail. Um, Basically, it's going to fall before terrorist violence. The same goal applies to the West, but with some significant differences. We're also going to turn the West into a land of independent producers and small homes, but it's going to happen in two ways. First of all, it's going to be a migration of whites into the West, who are going to take what are defined as excess lands. The Indians don't need them, so they're going to cede them to us and we're going to develop them. And at the same time, we're going to show Indian peoples how to have real homes just like us. But of course, they're unwilling to surrender their excess lands. And they're unwilling to really imitate us. And so unfortunately, we have to engage in a great deal of violence against them. So on the one hand, Reconstruction in the South becomes this process in which um, black people, freed people, are going to be turned into equal American citizens, which fails. In the West, it's going to be for their own good, we're going to conquer Native peoples, and that succeeds, but it's not for their own good. In both mm -hmm. of them, you need the federal government. These are both state projects. And the state is unwilling in the end to use the kind of violence and coercion that it readily engages in in the West against white Southerners. 
And in fact, it ends up being unwilling to use the amount of force that's necessary to protect its new black citizens. And so these two projects start out with the similar kind of aims, but go off in radically different directions. Right, right. And in the first chapter of Republic for Which It Stands, you really, really and rightfully um, hit hard on Andrew Johnson. And I think when you're talking about state projects, how really Andrew Johnson was facilitating a lot of these projects and also like, you know, uh, being like vehemently against the Freedmen's Bureau, as well as not uh, being willing to even hold any of the, you know, Confederates accountable or what have you. And um, I think that that just, uh, I think that that was like a really brilliant chapter. And so I don't know, do you you see like Andrew Johnson's role um, and as consequential as it was? And would it be, I guess, different if like there was someone who was not Andrew Johnson in there or is the reality of the United States and how it's organized are those just so deep that no one person can really you know affect that outcome that happened in reconstruction but Johnson's important but you but you raise a, a significant point you know how important can any one person be when you're talking about as deep a structural change as the United States was attempting in 1865 and what I tend to think is that, in fact, Reconstruction, if it couldn't, even if it didn't achieve all of its aims, could have succeeded much better than it did. Mm. Because what's astonishing is that the United States even attempted it. If anybody in 1860 could have predicted that at the end of five years, you would start a process to make ex-slaves into full citizens of the United States, that you would attempt that the federal government restructure Southern society, to remake it root and branch, that you imagined an egalitarian republic where at least between black people and white people, race was not supposed to make a difference, Um, that anybody would even suggest such a thing, let alone that laws would be passed to try to institute it, they would have thought you were crazy. And you might have been crazy, because in fact there is a, a huge problem with white supremacy, with structural racism at the time, all kinds of other things, but still they're making the attempt. But then it's just really, really bad luck that the person in charge of it is Andrew Johnson. <laughs> who, who, um, and, and, you know, and again, it's, it's not only that, that he's the president because of an assassination, but also during those days, Congress doesn't come back into session until December. So Andrew Johnson had from spring when Congress adjourned until December to essentially run the country by himself. I mean, it's like <laughs> present executive orders. It couldn't have gone any more wrong, and he couldn't have botched it any worse than he did. But that is the way that it works out. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm hardly a militarist, and I'm hardly somebody who has great confidence in the wisdom of the United States Army. But essentially, the only tool the government had working at the time was the United States Army. And what you're pull, doing is pulling back the only institution which could have made this work that the army is pulled increasingly out of the South, that black soldiers in particular are going to be sent West instead of in the South. And so even as you espouse these gains, your tools for achieving them are going to be tools which you are um, relinquishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, I had never, you brought up earlier and I never really thought about in this way that the idea that the U S was willing to repress violently repress, uh, you know, Indians in the West in a way that they were never willing to do to whites in the South, right? Although I think we can agree that one side deserved it a lot more. <laughs> um, and this idea of what the U.S. does with the military after the Civil War is interesting, right? I mean, there's there's been lots of uh, stories. I know like Chandra Manning has a book about the story about how the military right. essentially is like radicalizing during the war and, and really taking up the abolitionist flag during the war. And so it kind of sends this new meaning, I think, which I never really thought about before, to, yeah, taking black soldiers and moving them as, you know, Buffalo soldiers or whatever, moving them into the West and basically getting them out of a zone of conflict where they have a deep political stake, maybe an interest, and putting them somewhere else, right? (laughs) You know, that really has like a a political effect on the situation. Yeah, um, it's absolutely critical. So when people talk about, well, there's structural racism, that's that's what they're talking about. It's built into the very structure of how these institutions operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, it, and as bad as Andrew Johnson is, yeah, I think as you were mentioning, Munya, it does raise the question of <laughs> would it have mattered at the time, you know? <laughs> no. 
you touch on especially like with uh on radical reconstruction and what was developing in the south um you know uh, post slavery was a coercive labor system and uh, you make the point that although it was not slavery it was not really free labor either and it depended on extra legal violence coercive laws and burdensome debt relations and the use of like convict labor to limit alternatives um and you said that they embraced it, but they just uh, realized that they could achieve their goals without uh, it being free labor. And I, I'm, a, I'm just really curious about, like, you know, what the specifics on that, and how consequential do you think um, what I guess slavery was replaced by in that system? Um, it, how consequential was that in the making of Reconstruction? And um, I guess has it had like a long-term impact on, I guess, our economic system? That we have today too. Um, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about that because I really like that section. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know one of the great ironies of what happens in the South because the one thing all Northerners agreed on was free labor. That slavery had to be ended. Right. Um, and what you have is um, you know the Chattel system of slavery ended in 1865-1866. But the Southern fear is is that they're not going to be able to get the kind of labor they need to produce cotton, that they figure the only way they can do that is coercion. And they're, they're right. <laughs> I mean, one of the yeah. first things is mm-hmm. that um, black people do is they are not going to go back into working in field gangs for, for pay. That's not, that's not their idea of what freedom should be. So what you need is a system which will force them to labor. Um, but at the same time, you can't have chattel slavery. So what you get is two different systems, one of which is going to be sharecropping. And sharecropping evolves and evolves white people as well as black that at the end of the contract for sharing the land, the tenant is virtually always in debt and has to go back to work for um, Mm -hmm. another um, cotton planter. So you don't have slaves, but you have people who, because they're always in debt, always have to work for you and they they have actually little negotiating power. But more than that, what you have is a system which is still exists. I mean, this is the stuff that you still see. You see in traffic courts, you see it in other kinds of things, current quarrels over bail. You have a system in which when people are arrested, they do not have the money to pay their fines. And they're either going to be auctioned out in the crudest version to people who will pay their fines in exchange for labor, or they're going to be sent to prison and then leased out as convict labor. When you have mm, that sounds poor familiar. people today, yeah. Well, when you have poor people today who are thrown into jail uh, because they can't meet bail because of traffic fines, where the debts pile up, it essentially is an extension of the same system. It's mm-hmm. not slavery, but it certainly is coerced labor. It is certainly not what anybody intended should be the result of the end of the Civil War. Yeah. Exactly right. I mean, I mean, this is sort of Michelle, like kind of the root of Michelle Alexander's book, right? Is the, right. there's this sort of effect that goes through, and I think there's this there's this other weird, interesting effect that happens too. That's sort of a, a same but opposite, in that you have things like the Fourteenth Amendment that get passed during Reconstruction, and this gets back to your sort of idea of like this link between the Reconstruction between Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, but they almost are like weird mirrors of mere opposites of one another. Whereas when you get into the Gilded Age. The 14th Amendment goes from protecting the social rights of a class of people, right, to all of a sudden protecting corporate rights against labor, yeah. right, in the Gilded yeah. Age. Um, what what happens between Reconstruction and the Gilded Age that we seem to just completely flip? You know, in part, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, the evolution is so weird. There's still an argument among legal scholars about how it is, and it takes a very long time to do it how it is that person comes to be corporate personhood. Um, Mm -hmm. And it involves, there's a a long story I'm not going to go into here, which is about um, Senator Conkling in New York, who's a a corporate lawyer and his interpretation. But essentially what you do is you start an evolution where the court first strips away the impact of the 14th Amendment to um, protect black people in the South. And once it's done that through a series of decisions, it will start another series of decisions, starting with the Southern Pacific Railroad case, but it won't fully play out until the present day, which continues to expand all the time. These artificial persons begin to get the rights which are being denied to actual human beings. And Mm -hmm. so the end result of it is going to be that they're protected, they're 
property is protected, their taxes are protected. Um, they're being given all kinds of privileges that were never, in my opinion, ever intended. And now they're being endowed with speech rights and all kinds of other rights by the Supreme Court. The 14th Amendment is one of the most fascinating stories in American history. Um, it has been utterly hijacked, drained of its original meaning, and has new meaning poured into it. Um, it's and it's still very hard to explain because it happens step by incremental step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it just sort of is created out of this uh, monster that is nineteenth <laughs> <Yeah>. century America, <laughs> yeah. essentially, right? It and I mean, and it it kind of it represents. I, I think for me, it represents this like interesting metaphor because you know in your books you talk about how you know the federal government and, and Grandin hits on this too, I think, but you talk about how the federal government is used you know almost as you know to extend some sort of social rights they're used for some sort of social good in the south right in the sense of at least it's trying to do something you know however inept or whatever about helping the position of these former slaves but by the late 19th century the federal government is still just as active in life but it seems to be solely for the purpose of uh, funneling money upwards to corporations, giving handouts, things like that. And the social function of it seems to have just thoroughly died off. Like it has no social arm anymore. Yeah, well, it'll have a social arm, but it's quite particular. And it's quite particular around who can lobby the federal government to do what they want. So it's, it's not, you know, the 19th century has a series of railroad corporate lobbies, but they also have the Christian lobby. They have the women's Christian temperance union that's being very effective lobbyists. There's a bunch of people who can do it, but the, the federal government, as it is both liable to, um, it still responds to its citizens, but it doesn't respond equally to all citizens. And the people it's going to be responding to most are going to be, by the late 19th century, these artificial persons the persons that are embodied in uh, in corporations. But, you know, I should back off a little bit because there's one good thing that the 14th Amendment still persisted in that goes around the word person. And that's because it protects the rights of those who are not United States citizens. It protects the rights of persons mm-hmm. living in the United States. And even now, that's the last part of the, the good part of the amendment that um, – People are trying to shred. Anti-immigrant activists are trying to shred when they want to stop birthright citizenship and they want to try to stop the legal protection of persons in the United States who are not American citizens. So the 14th Amendment, I have to back off a little bit. The word persons turns into a two-edged sword. Mm. Yeah. You could almost, uh, as you describe it, I can mentally, if I had see how the attacks could go, though, some sort of uh, revisionist, just, oh, the, the people, when they wrote that, they clearly meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. what they meant. <laughs> yeah. They said that about what they meant. They meant, we're going to protect black people in the South. That's what yeah. we're going to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to kind, of, to kind of move back West again, you know, and sort of talking about corporate person, this is great place to sort of talk about these transcontinental railroads because reading railroaded i mean the role that the railroads play in westward expansion is i think positively central in your book and you you begin by saying you know hey railroads they came to epitomize progress nationalism and civilization itself although you later said that maybe you question the civilization aspect of it but this is not uncommon right i mean you know in the communist manifesto even marx is like hey things are bad in india but at least like the british brought railroads or yep. whatever, right i mean it's, it's a very common 19th century feeling but you sort of argue that uh, actually they're pretty disastrous in every way environmentally to obviously the native population of the West that's going to get wiped out uh, and to just the political system itself. So uh, what's wrong with railroads? <laughs> what, what happened with railroads? <laughs> well, the major thing that happened with railroads when I'm talking about 1860, 1865 is we didn't need them when we built them. I mean, the reason they give for building the railroads is to win the Civil War, to make sure that California mm-hmm. stays in the Union. But we're not going to finish the first one until four years after the war is over. And we barely <laughs> start building them while the war is going on. And secondly, they thought, if, well, okay, we'll give you these subsidies and we'll go and uh, people, private corporations will build them. But anybody who knew anything about railroads looked out there and saw the obvious. Uh, there's 2,000 miles Mm -hmm. 
we have to build and there's virtually nothing to put on a train. <laughs> How in the world are we going to make money out of this? And so they don't build them. And so what you have to do is keep increasing the um, subsidies. And what you begin to attract is a particular kind of man. I mean, Leland Stanford being one of them, the, head, the um, founder of my, my university. And what they realize is you can make an awful lot of money out of a railroad without carrying anything at all. You can pocket the subsidies. You can sell the bonds. You can sell the stock. You can set up a company to build it and then contract with yourself to pay outrageous sums of money to them to build it. And in the end, you can leave somebody else holding the bag. And that's what they do. I mean, the railroads will end up being this huge speculative enterprise and then most of them will not make any money at all. As a matter of fact, the transcontinental part of them doesn't make money until the 1880, late 1880s, early 1890s. So economically, these end up being disastrous. But once you've built them, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be consequences, and Indian people suffer the worst consequences, but it's also going to be environmental consequences because these, these are um, really resource-intensive kinds of operations, and they're also going to create a burden of debt. They're going to create problems for states. I mean, in the end of things, we spend a lot of time on railroad thinking, who could have ever thought this was a good idea? <laughs> yeah, you have a great uh, line in Railroad, which I like, which you talk about how Gilded Age America was an age prone to evolutionary metaphors like survival of the fittest, and it never questioned that its dominant figures were, by definition, the fit. But my guys, talking about the guys running these transcontinental railroads, they could be ruthless, but their corporations were failures constantly in need of subsidy and rescue. And in part, this book has been a study of how the unsuccessful and incompetent not only survived, but prospered and became powerful. It was the triumph of the unfit, whose survival demanded the intervention of the state and the corporations themselves, uh, which the corporations themselves corrupted. So you talked about these these railroad men. Um, you, know, you brought up Leland Stanford, who is a very hilarious character in, in your book. Uh, there's also another one of their lawyers, Richard Olney, which is one of my favorite things ever. You say, personally, Richard Olney was a tyrant. He quite literally hated infants and small animals. He hated big animals, too, for that matter. He once had a cow shot for trampling his tennis court. Uh <laughs> Which that one made me laugh so hard. I read it to my wife. The second I read it, I was like, I was like, get a load of this. But yeah. so, so we have these characters, right? These are not. Uh, let's just say we're not putting forward the country's best. <laughs> so, so what role are they playing? A in the failures of these railroads, but also it. What what role do they play in sort of, I don't know, reshaping the federal government? Well, precisely because the corporations can't. Um survive without the aid of the federal government, what the railroads do is invent the modern corporate lobby. They have to invent the modern corporate lobby because yeah. if, they, <laughs> if there isn't aid coming to them, they are going to lose a great deal of money. The railroads are going to go bankrupt, and many of them went bankrupt anyway. I mean, the number of bankruptcies mm -hmm. is absolutely astonishing. So the first thing you do is you create a lobby because you need favors. But there's another part of it, too, which is still true of modern corporations. You just don't need um, government aid to give you subsidies to allow you to make more money. You need government aid to actually compete against competing corporations. Because if there are other railroads competing for you and there's not enough for both of you to survive, then those who can get the most government failures, um, government assistance is going to be the one that survives. So what you have is this irony that a lot of the times the corporations are pushing for regulation and they're pushing for regulation, which is going to hurt the competitors more than it hurts them. And so, so what you have is the government is everywhere in this. And that, that this can be passed off as when I read this stuff about the 19th century being the great age of laissez-faire and that the West being developed through free competition, has anybody ever read this stuff? I mean, have they gone through the document? <laughs> Look at what's going on here. Um, and the thing is, even the people who ran the railroads would have been sort of be astonished that the interpretation of them as um, as these master businessmen, because most of all, you read their you read their mail to each other. They hate each other. <laughs> they love the guys. And in fact, most of the people they're working with are idiots. Charles Francis Adams became one of my favorite people in the 19th century, not because 
because he was a nice guy, but because he would just go crazy about the kind of idiocy that was going on in this stuff. And it was just no end of it. As, as he says, the lunatics are running the asylum and the lunatics were running the asylum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, but there's like a certain sophistication, right? You know, in their corruption, right? There's a certain sophistication that uh, I think we can still see today, right? I mean, uh, again, Richard Olney, this railroad lawyer, you have this great quote from him. I think it's in a letter he's sending where they're talking about the creation of the Interstate Commerce Commission. And they kind of agree, like, look, this thing's getting created one way or the other. We don't we don't really necessarily want it, but it's getting created. And Olney just says... You know, the internet, the Interstate Commerce uh, Commission satisfies the popular clamor for a, for government supervision of the railroads, while at the same time, that supervision's entirely nominal. So the part of wisdom is not to destroy it, but to utilize it. And it shows a certain sophistication in the corruption, even of like, yeah, let the let let the you know, let's work with the state to create pretend regulatory agencies that then do nothing to actually stop what we're, <laughs> what we're engaged in, right? Yeah. I mean, what you, what you have, the Interstate Commerce Commission is one example, um, and it's mm -hmm. one that could have worked. What only recognizes is, look, we, we can't stop it, but there are two competing versions of it. We put in the milder version, and it's not going to be able to do much harm. I mean, Adams recognized the same thing. But at the same time, they sort of wanted Interstate Commerce Commission because there is too much competition. They want it to go down. The Interstate Commerce Commission is going to go up and down in its efficacy. But there's others. Um, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act. One of the things I noticed about the Sherman Antitrust Act when I was reading that and writing Railroad in the Republic is nobody voted against it. <laughs> mm -hmm. One thing you can count on American history, if nobody votes against something, it's a really bad idea. Um, <laughs> when we're going to go into Vietnam and Iraq, nobody votes against it. <laughs> when we're going to establish the Interstate Commerce, not the Interstate Commerce Commission, the Sherman Antitrust Act, nobody's voting against it. It means that it's not going to do any good. Nobody's scared of this thing. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's the other part, too, that very often the legislation gets so watered down. And it's, you know, it's a lesson about bipartisanship. You make it bipartisan enough, and it's going to be utterly meaningless. Anything that's going to make a difference should have opposition. And many of these acts don't. Yeah, and I think in one more aspect about the sort of railroad expansion west that I think doesn't get talked about as much that you talk about in your book is, again, I mean, this goes to the the – the line of sort of subsidies the government gives the railroad is they also give the railroad these enormous tracts of land, right, on either side of where the rail is supposedly going to be, and it really recreates this image of the West, right, where it's it's not rugged individuals going out first and then things coming out to meet them, as much as uh, no, the railroad has a bunch of land, and uh, now you can move out here, and maybe the railroad's going to somehow be your landlord, or you're buying land from somebody the railroad sold it to. It's another thing for the railroad to make money off of just selling, right? Yeah, and you know the, the original idea was was um, you know, pretty clever. <laughs> it's not going to work that way. The original idea is look, we're going to give the railroads this land. We're then going to mandate they have to sell it in a certain amount of time. That if we give them the land, we don't have to give them cash, which we don't have because we just fought a civil war and we don't have that much money. Um, they'll sell the land to the settlers. The settlers will become the customers. The customers will ship on the railroads, and it's going to be a free lunch. Everybody's going to um, win for this. And for a tiny bit, that works. But the problem becomes there's a lot of railroads get a lot of land they can't sell. Um, and if they can't sell the land, they're still not generating enough traffic. And they will also mortgage a lot of the land. They'll mortgage a lot of the land so they get loans, so it puts the railroads in debt. But they then argue that they don't have to sell the land in three years because they've mortgaged it, and that's as good as a sale, but that's not as good as a sale. So what the railroads do is pretty much take a huge swath of the West. Um, it can be exaggerated how much they took, but in the end, they get more land to sell the settlers than settlers get through the Homestead Act. This becomes a major way of wow. bringing settlers into the West. Mm -hmm. But it also gives them an incentive to bring people into a place they weren't going to come otherwise. If Americans mm -hmm. have such a land hunger, why do the railroads have to advertise so much to sell the land? 
what you're doing is drawing people into a place as two disastrous consequences. Much of this land could not support agriculture the way that they um, practiced it. And the other one was that it leads to these huge crop surpluses that begins to drive down prices for farmers and begins to hurt farmers across the nation. So economically, none of this stuff ever really works out the way that it was planned. And it's the kind of thing that happens over and over again with the railroads. People are pretty good at thinking out the first step, and that sounds good. I mean, a lot of this is like you're having your worst friend in high school in charge of things. Uh, you know, <laughs> first step's plausible. The second step, not so much. The third step, I want out of here. Um, and that's what happens on many of these things. So it is, there's a surface plausibility, but when you trace the whole thing through, it doesn't work out the way they wanted it to. Mm. Yeah, and this point about like uh, you know where people really clamoring to go west, I mean it, it's sort of interesting, right? Because the entire history of Los Angeles, like post Western expansion, is just water politics, you know, fighting over how the water is going to get here, where you're going to take the water from, etc. And in the and nobody ever asked the initial question of like why why the fuck do people live here? <laughs> it doesn't yeah. make any sense. <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's again, once you've taken the first step, the other steps sort of logically follow. Um, because what you, you're not going to, not logically, but they certainly follow. How are you going to get out of here? But the, the thing is, my, the basic thing is if people were, if, it was, if Western expansion was simply this inexorable urge of Americans to move West, you would not have had to advertise. You would not have had to have the Homestead Act. You would not have had to subsidize these things. Um, but in fact, it's, it's going to be a project which is nurtured by the government and it's nurtured by people who can make money off of it. And much of that continues down to the, to the present day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I guess that that also really reminds me and like circling back to the 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 mythical um ideas of westward expansion versus reality i love how you touch on like john gast's famous like a 1872 lithograph uh american progress which uh for the listeners it's it's one of like the big like very large white lady who's like you know uh walking west and there's just you see bison and indians just retreating and then the railroads are following these people and and it's and there's no military at all right uh when it's implying that people are just kind of going and oh the railroads are just following wherever these people are going and there's just a non-violent like retreat of the indians there's no, nothing really you know uh, happening there uh and uh you know the the towns and cities are in the east instead of a uh and instead of like springing up quickly you know in the in the in the west right so i think that um i just it just reminds me of how i guess backwards that mythical thing is because really the railroads as you've been saying came first right and yeah. uh you know there was an actual um state-sponsored violence where there's no state involved in this like type of lithograph which really uh, I think perpetuated that myth of like the rugged individual just going uh, west too. So it's actually required to have state-sponsored violence. Um, you know, a, a, a corrupt, uh, wildly corrupt, uh, subsidized uh, railroads who like, kind of treated as speculative assets, just buying uh, and like building railroads up to nowhere and saying, "Hey, you got to come here, right?" Like that—that's really fundamental and core. It seems to how um, I guess the inverse of this myth that we are taught. What you do with any myth is you naturalize something. It's just you make it that this is a process which humans really have no control. It was going to happen. It was inevitable. What are you complaining about? Um, there was actually no intervention. That, that the woman floating above this is, is simply the American destiny. And it's the American destiny to move west. It's the Indians' destiny to retreat and to disappear. It's the Buffalo's destiny to disappear. Uh, <laughs> it's nobody's fault. It's just this is what happened. And the myth always does that. It's simply the acting out of this kind of inevitable plan. Um, and there's going to be people who are agents of it, but they're just simply following a destiny. If it wasn't them, it'd be somebody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, creating a sort of just inevitability as if there is not contingency in history. Yeah, and it's the same way we justify any, any social order. It's, you know, the, the relations mm -hmm. between men and women are natural. The relations between different races are natural. Mm -hmm. um, that's 
this is simply another example of the same thing. Yeah, it's always interesting how whatever's natural is just whatever the person's doing right at that moment. <laughs> but, but given, you know, I know you like, uh, you know, you occasionally sort of explore counterfactuals in your books. Is there a world where the U.S. just foregoes westward expansion, right, you know, or moves at the slower pace that you talk about in your books? continues the project of reconstruction and actually has some sort of successful social reconstruction in the south and then the eternal the eternal question of american politics in that world do we finally get a labor party or a social democratic party uh like all of europe got but the u.s skipped <laughs> you know my, my answer to all those things is yeah those worlds were possible i mean one of, one of the things i like about history is that it shows you that you know, it sounds like a country and western song. Things don't have to be this way. <laughs> um, they could have they could have turned out differently. You can imagine a reconstruction where it's not going to perfectly succeed, but where the clan is crushed, the army simply suppresses that kind of white violence. Um, a black political black motive sustain a Republican Party in the South. It doesn't be, Jim Crow doesn't come about. I can easily imagine all of those things. Those were historically contingent events. The same thing in the West. You don't build the transcontinental railroads. The United States is going to expand. It's going to explain. It's going to um, claim much of the North American continent. But at the same time, it will expand much more slowly. There'll be places which, in fact, people moved into and then later abandoned, which would remain Indian country. Native peoples would have a longer time to adjust. Um, they'd retain more of their land base. All of those things seem to be perfectly um, imaginable. And the same thing is, you know, historians think about it, it's, it and it could have happened that, let's say in the 1880s, um, the Knights of Labor do not get defeated in a series of disastrous strikes. There isn't a haymarket, the bomb isn't thrown, and there isn't this reaction against um, labor parties in Chicago and elsewhere in the United States. The Knights of Labor survive, and then they make an alliance, which they could have done with the Farmers Alliance. Um, and then what you begin to get is a farmer labor party that emerges in the United States and really dominates it in the way that Eugene Debs imagined socialism uh, dominating it. Certainly, you can imagine a radical West. It's hard to believe now, but the West was the most <laughs> radical part of the country. There were Oklahoma socialists. You know, Montana yeah. had a strong socialist party. So, yeah, I can imagine all of those things happening. They didn't happen. But they could have happened. And that, to me, is the beauty of, of history. It's the beauty of any kind of history. You go back into the past, and you don't get a litany of it's inevitable that things turned out the way they did. It wasn't inevitable. There are possibilities in the past we never, ever imagined. And that's the part that keeps me hopeful about writing history and looking at the historical past. Because much of the time I can laugh at these people. I can see disaster after disaster. But I can also see causes for hope. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a uh, better world than we got, but uh, <laughs> in the in the world that we did get, you know, I know you you look at the Gilded Age, although you know your your original history of uh, the West, right? It's your misfortune, none of my own, goes you know, up to the you know further up into the twentieth century. So, what role? So we talked about how the federal government is essentially shaping Western expansion. What role is at play essentially in in the West today, right? Because I think still there is this myth about the West. I mean, we get people in Washington who are, uh, you know, creating compounds and stuff like that because they're going to get away from the government or whatever. You drive in Northern California and you see the U.S. out of U.N. signs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what role has the federal government played, you know, in the landscape of the Western United States at, today? You know, it, it, when I see those signs, and I, you know, I, I taught in Washington for a long time, and when I see the compounds, when I see that develop, I think, are you people from here? I mean, do you have any idea, do you have any idea what this place is? I mean, all you have to do is look at a map. The federal government owns a great deal of the West. It manages all kinds of plants, which drives um, a lot of right-wing people crazy, but that's the way it has been since the 19th century. That part is not going to change. 
that most Western states are heavily dependent on federal payoffs for those lands that get in lieu of taxes payments. So there's a great deal of funding that comes in. That much of the uh, development of the West following World War II is because of federal and got during World War II and afterwards was from federal um, investment in the military industrial complex. All of that is federal money, which provides the jobs. Um, in the current day, Silicon Valley, or I live, you know, I listen to these guys and they think that they invented Silicon Valley in their garage. <laughs> you know, Margaret O'Mara at Washington has written a wonderful book about where Silicon Valley comes from. It comes from this government aid that comes through aerospace and through other things to help develop the computer industry. Everywhere you turn in the West is the federal government. So a lot of the time, I'm just slack-jawed when I listen to people talk. Uh, because all you have to do is, like, is you could, it's like wandering around with my three-year-old granddaughter. I could just point at things. See? 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 Mm -hmm. like, they don't get it. My three-year-old granddaughter is smarter than they are. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and this is sort of as a way to kind of set up this next question, which is how do we explain characters like Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan or even recently like the Cokes, right? How do we explain these figures that sort of come out of Western, you know, Western capital or Western politics who have this, uh, you know, I, I think we agree it's it's uh, only on its face, but like have this sort of libertarian idea of the, of the state. Um, a lot of them have come. I mean, for me, the, the critical figure in all of this is Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie, mm -hmm. Carnegie went through a crisis at a certain, at a certain point where he wondered, why in the world should I have so much money? Um, what purpose does all of this fulfill? And he only resolved the crisis when he began to think that, in fact, it was a larger plan. He was part of the fit, that he got things and he got them largely through his own efforts. And that through his own efforts, he would do good in the world that lesser people could not do. I think some of these people, not all of them, because none of them that I've, some of them have no sign of doing any good in the world. But I think um, the idea that those who've gone to become philanthropists and others, they begin to think of themselves quite literally as they deserve this. And they're good mm -hmm. people and they're going to do this by um, giving away or creating opportunities for others to be like them, the Carnegie philanthropy model. There are others who simply will take a harsher view. I think, you know, the, the Cokes would be one of them. The Cokes are, a couple of years ago, I didn't go, and I, I feel sort of guilty about it because I um, <laughs> recommended a lot of my friends to the people who were putting it on, <laughs> and, they went, and they were they were sort of appalled. <laughs> they, asked, they asked, where were you? And I said, I'm not going there. Um, but, the, but the Cokes have this fake Western town where they sometimes bring in historians and others to recreate the West. And I realized for the Cokes, they really imagined this is the way it was. You know, even as a kid, when I went to Knott's Berry Farm in Southern California with a fake Western town, I knew this was a fake Western town. <laughs> These aren't real people, but the Cokes really think that this is the way things were. And for them, the Western myth becomes, it is a myth of individualism. It is a myth of libertarianism. And, you know, when you, when you begin to deal with it, when you begin to deal with the Cokes, the Elon Musks of the world, um, you know, when I'm not thinking they're deranged, I think they really have bought a vision of the world which is quite astonishing, um, but one which many others Americans have bought but never could really apply them to themselves because they, they weren't as successful as the Cokes, they weren't as successful as, as Elon Musk. So yeah, I, I think they bought a vision which justifies what they have. And if you accept a certain vision of the West where simply this is a harsh world, it's a competitive world, um, you have outcompeted others, but in the end you're a good guy, um, which is a much, it's not the version of the Westerns, which were more ambivalent than that. But if you take that vision on, then it can justify your life in ways otherwise, I don't know if they if they're like Carnegie and really have a, a crisis of confidence, but if not, they don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, to sort of put a bow on this, you, you have this line in Railroad that I have to admit I've thought about every day since reading it, which was uh, 
you know, t- you talk about the failures of all the railroads, how they constantly needed infusions of state money, how they basically were just, you know, <laughs> they're making the money off financial markets rather than actually building anything. And you say, these railroads have led me into a deeper mystery of modernity, how so many powerful and influential people are so ignorant and do so many things so badly, and yet the world still goes on. We are confronted with this constantly, yet we often choose to believe that those in high places know what they are doing and that those who achieve great riches are being rewarded for merit. And you, you, you sort of speak to this sort of irony that the West, the Western myth itself has created this idea of like, you know, it took the dumbest, most venal people and made them rich, essentially <laughs> yeah. through corruption. And then they used that wealth to then you know, backhandedly justify their, uh, their, you know, how they got it. Right. And, you know, at your own university at Stanford university, it's the perfect example. We already talked about Leland Stanford. You already mentioned Leland Stanford a little bit, but in your book, it's, it truly is hilarious how much his contemporaries hate him. Like they they literally think he's the dumbest boy alive and they're not afraid to say it over and over again. Yeah. And he has completely, in a way, recreated himself through the creation of Stanford, through funding the creation of Stanford University, uh, where he went from being dumbest boy alive to this name now associated with, uh, you know, the upper echelons of American uh, education. What the the hell is happening in this country? And is there any way out of this hell? (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny you should mention Stanford because I I taught a class at Stanford. Jane Stanford, who was the co-founder of Stanford University, was murdered. And so I to get students to use the archives, I taught a class on who killed Jane Stanford. And in the end, we didn't really get an answer, so it, it became a question of mine. So I began looking at the origins of um, Stanford University and who did kill Jane Stanford. And Stanford University was. Leland um, did get, not get any more talented once he founded the university. It nearly goes bankrupt. The federal government sues him, tries to get the money back. All kinds of things happen. But the thing is, is that you create a myth of the university of that everything he did before philanthropy will justify. And I think part of that is, goes to answering your question. What happens to us is we think, well, you know, sort of say what you will. <laughs> you can look around at the ruins, the disaster. Say what you will. We got Stanford University. And I think, really? <laughs> all, all of this, all of this, you know, what happens to Indian peoples, what happens to the environment, what happens to the depressions, what happens to all of these things. And we get Stanford University. Is that the justification of it? Why not, why not really just widen our horizon? And instead of thinking, what are they going to give us after the havoc is over, instead of what could we really accomplish together without putting these people in charge and then through philanthropy, allowing them to try to decide what the ideal future is. Um, What we have is an utter and colossal failure of the imagination, an utter lack of confidence in our own selves to think that, in fact, we need the Stanfords of the world, the Musks of the world, the Gates of the world to decide what the future is going to be. That should be our decision. Well, Munya, I think that's maybe a good thing to end on. Do you got any more, you got any thoughts? Uh, no, I mean, I totally, I totally agree. That very, very good note to end on. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. White, for, uh, you know, taking this time to do this interview with us. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll repeat for you. Richard White has a, you know, book of photography. He's co-written with his son, California Exposures. Go read it, people. <laughs> Tell your library to get a copy. Yeah, I can't wait to <laughs> check that one out. Yeah, so thank you for coming on. Sure, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. White. This was really okay. awesome. Bye. Well, Munia, I think that was a fucking amazing interview. What totally. do you think? That was incredible. So I think we'd like to leave you all with uh, some closing thoughts on the Gilded Age from Richard White's book, The Republic for Which It Stands. The Gilded Age current still ran strong, but they had begun to shift direction. A country that imagined its natural endowment in terms of abundance had begun to think in terms of scarcity and conservation, even as it paradoxically began to stress consumption over production in its economy. 
A country that had always thought of itself as thinly peopled began to worry about immigration. A country that had worked to keep foreign manufacturers out while attracting capital began to think in terms of foreign investments and exports. Strands such as conservation and imperialism, which seemed unconnected, began to intertwine. It was time to begin again. All right, we'll see you all next week when we talk about the new age of imperialism. Indeed. It's the dawning of the age <laughs> of imperialism. <laughs> oh, no, either one. The money's not the deal, the cow's not the deal. It's freedom and liberty and access to a land. Get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate. space.